0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. I'm Caleb Brown. Between the U.S. insinuating itself into disputes in the Middle East and actively supporting authoritarian regimes, it's hard to conclude that things are going particularly well for U.S. Middle East policy. Cato's John Hoffman believes U.S. Middle East policy is quite simply a failure. John, if I understand you correctly, uh, your view is that Washington, when it comes to engaging in Middle East policy, for the most part, their answers are uh, weapons and money and other uh, military support. And that is pretty much the range of how the U.S. engages in the Middle East. Is that right? Right.
1: Pretty much. It's always been a overly militarized approach to the region. And, you know, that that's not the case for, you know, just right now. This is the case for for decades of policy towards the Middle East, whether there's a Republican in office, whether there's a Democrat in office, this commitment to an overly militarized approach to the Middle East is is truly bipartisan in nature and decades in the making.
0: In a conversation I had with our now former colleague, Jordan Cohen, he pointed out the degree to which this conflict in Gaza between Israel and Hamas has been fought to some extent with U.S. weapons on both sides. And that is something that you would hope would give our foreign policy leadership in the federal government at least some pause, but it doesn't appear to have done so.
1: No. So like you said, it should be somewhat of a of a wake up call here and, and alarm bells going off saying, hold on, you know, both sides here are using U.S. weapons to commit, you know, atrocities. And, you know, how do we as the United States, you know, feel with, uh, you know, our name being stamped on these these instruments uh, th- that are, you know, just producing violence and Unfortunately, it it hasn't. And what we see currently is the Biden administration reaching for the same you know old failed playbook, which is let's throw money, weapons and other military assets at the region and cross our fingers and hope that things get better.
0: All right. So it, let's assume that the foreign policy leadership in the federal government woke up tomorrow with clear eyes and clear heads about the degree to which the U.S. ought to be engaging in the Middle East at all, and uh, seriously considering what U.S. interests are there and trying to craft a policy that works on behalf of American security, what might that policy look like?
1: At its very core, it would involve a huge military drawdown in the region. It would entail, you know, a dramatic reduction in arms sales to the Middle East. It would also just involve a recognition that the strategic interests of the United States in the Middle East are incredibly limited, that the Middle East has been to an extent exceptionalized in U.S. foreign policy around a series of different myths, around a series of different patron-client relationships, and what it would do is it would recognize that U- U.S. interests in the region are limited, rather easy to achieve, and are best done by keeping the region, its actors, and so on and so forth at arm's length.
0: Now, people uh, listening might might think, well, we're talking about Middle East policy, so obviously we're talking uh, about Israel and uh, Palestinians and the, the constant back and forth there. But of course, it's much broader than that. The U.S. has been very helpful to Saudi Arabia in undertaking its war in Yemen. And that has had, if I understand you correctly, some pretty destabilizing effects.
1: No, absolutely. You know the situation in Yemen. You know before Gaza was the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Three hundred seventy-seven thousand people have been killed in this war since twenty fifteen. A vast majority of the country is on the brink of starvation. So what we've seen is after nine years of Saudi Arabia's and the United Arab Emirates, you know, leading this disastrous war in Yemen, it has accomplished virtually nothing, and. Like you said, the United States, its footprint is across the entire Middle East. You know, this isn't just Israel. This isn't just Saudi Arabia. You know, this is across the entirety of the region. It's Egypt. It's Jordan. It's Turkey. It's Qatar. It's Bahrain. It's everywhere. And unfortunately, instead of recognizing the limitations of U.S. foreign policy in the region, Biden and team, seem to be going the complete other direction and continue to hamper on uh, Saudi-Israel normalization as being a cure-all to the region. And this normalization deal ostensibly would come with a formal security guarantee, the ultimate concession Washington can bestow upon a foreign nation to Saudi Arabia.
0: Now, I want to, I guess, draw some parallels if I can. With the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia and the U.S. relationship with Israel, there seem to be precious little uh, movements towards saying, hey, guys, the, the way you are acting in this country does not serve American interests well. And perhaps we ought to be rethinking our military support for your efforts. There seems to be none of that. No, no, there, there really
1: is none. You know, what we see is whenever it comes to Israel, whenever it comes to Saudi Arabia, whenever it comes to really any of our partners in the Middle East, we see this reflexive resorting to unconditional support. You know, and this is despite the fact that both Israel and Saudi Arabia, you know, pursue policies that are directly contrary to our own interests, to our own stated values, so on and so forth. So. Instead of taking a step back and saying, hold on a minute, maybe we need to fundamentally reassess what's going on here. We just see a automatic resorting to the status quo.
0: You mentioned the security deal uh, between Saudi Arabia, Israel and the United States, where the United States would, we believe, extend some sort of formal security guarantees, which, as you mentioned, is is a major concession. And people who don't follow this area of policy very closely, I I am among them, uh, would be forgiven for thinking that, well, what do Saudi Arabia and Israel agree on? And when it comes to security in the region, they actually agree on quite a lot.
1: Absolutely. And there are three main interests that kind of bring together Israel and Saudi Arabia. The first is to maintain the overall Illiberal status quo within the Middle East. Obviously, actor like Saudi Arabia, highly autocratic. They view the preservation of the authoritarian status quo within the Middle East as paramount to their own survival. Israel and many Israeli officials have, you know, are on record saying that they vastly prefer to engage with autocrats across the region because, you know, they fear the Arab street, they fear, you know, the demands that might come if a democratic government were to rise within the Middle East, you know, and put more pressure on the Palestinian issues specifically. So that's the first shared interest is preserving this authoritarian status quo. The second shared interest is preserving the regional balance of power. Right now, the balance of power skews heavily in the favor of Saudi Arabia and Israel, and they have a shared common interest in balancing against Iran or any other actor that might try to to tilt this balance. The third shared interest is to get the United States to pay for number one and number two. (laughs) So, you know, it's these three interests that really bind them together. So when we talk about this Saudi-Israel normalization deal, and we talk about the United States extending perhaps a formal security guarantee to Saudi Arabia, you know, this essentially legally binds America to be uh, the the security guarantor of Mohammed bin Salman, of this autocratic status quo, of this regional balance of power. And of course, it's the U.S. taxpayer that's fronting this bill.
0: To the extent that, The interests of Saudi Arabia and Israel are aligned in significant ways, even if we have some harsh judgments for what those interests actually are. The United States needn't play any role in those two countries deciding to formalize and try to work together to maintain this status quo. Precisely. They require no
1: incentive to normalize and to work together because it's been in their own respective strategic interests to do so. And they've been doing so for years. You know, it's it's been referred to as implicit normalization or tacit normalization, whatever you want to call it. But they've been working together, particularly since 2010, 2011 and, you know, the Arab uprisings. They've been working together on a host of political, economic and security matters because, again, they view it in their interest to do so. So the idea that the United States has to throw everything it has to get these two to work together, you know, is just is just a false assumption.
0: John Hoffman is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.